The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank, the bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life, a bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify, a bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers, that is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose, Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I'm not a fan of smoking because I grew up in a household where both my mum and my dad smoked. And me and my three brothers, who would be expected to follow on and grab a pack from mum and dad and get smoking early, we decided not to. And it's something that stuck with us. We really didn't like it. Luckily for us, mum and dad lived to a reasonably uh, old age. And my mum, touch wood, is, is still with us. Uh, my dad died... Um, just over the age of 80. But in many families, smoking is the thing that shortens lifespans and causes the most awful deaths. We know this. The science is absolutely bulletproof clear. There is data for Africa on how smoking causes deaths, about 5,000 a year in Aotearoa. And we know how much it costs for all of those people who are smoking, not just in terms of the health costs, the amount of time going through hospital for all sorts of rich respiratory and cardiovascular problems, but also the costs in terms of just the sheer pain and the grief of it all and the lost productivity and work, if you want to be truly mercantile about it. We have a new government, which is self-professed as a mercantile team. They are keen about the costs. They want to reduce the cost of doing business in government. They want to reduce the burden on taxpayers. So you'd think that a set of policies that reduce the cost of health by $5.1 billion in the years to come would be a good set of policies. They also like the idea that people are going to keep working, that they're going to be productive, that they're going to pay their taxes and not be a burden on the state. So you'd expect to see a significant love for any policies that gets people back to work, that makes ensures that they work for longer. In fact, when you look at the changes to our smoke-free rules at the end of last year that were legislated by the previous government and are now being unwound by this new coalition government, the numbers were done. We know how many lives are going to be saved. We know how much extra spending there'll be in the health system. We know how much the productivity for all of those people who will get sick is worth. In fact, we have a really clear idea from all the data that over many decades, overseas and here, about how many quality-adjusted life years will be lost by not going through with these policies 
of banning smoking for those people who are born from 2009 onwards, reducing the amount of nicotine cigarettes, and sharply reducing the number of outlets from which you can buy cigarettes. Those policies will reduce health costs by $5.2 billion, increase productivity by $5.8 billion, and generate an extra 580,000 health-adjusted life years. In fact, if you don't put what they call a discount rate through these things, the benefits of these smoke-free policies are enormous. $20 billion, 2 million health-adjusted life years. What government would argue they need an extra seven to $800 million in tobacco excise to pay for a tax cut? And in return, they're quite happy for a bunch of mostly Māori people to die from smoking and to have the most awful health problems and problems with their communities, their working lives, all of that, just to pay for some tax cuts. It's like the government took off its mask and said, yeah, this is who we are. And it's awful. How do we know it's awful? Well, we speak to the researcher, Andrew Wah, from the University of Otago, about the research done in advance of the legislation last year, which did that analysis, which did the cost-benefit analysis, which looked at how many health-adjusted life years would be saved. Like many, uh, he feels betrayed by the government's decision to roll back those changes for the sake of some tax cuts. Tax cuts that will go mostly to people who are wealthy, who are Pākehā, who own property, and frankly, who need it much less than everyone else. These are hundreds of millions of dollars in tax cuts paid for in the lives of young and old Māori smokers. It's awful. But... In this week's episode of When the Facts Change, we find out how awful, how much the awfulness is worth. Well, Tanakwe, and welcome to the spin-offs When the Facts Change to Andrew Wah, who is an Associate Professor at the University of Otago's Division of Health Sciences, specialising in Māori public health. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Kia ora. We're obviously talking to you today in the wake of the decisions by the new government to essentially reverse uh, the smoke-free changes legislated at the end of last year. You were part of a team of researchers that did the heavy lifting on what would be the effects of this legislation, how, how many people wouldn't die, how many people wouldn't get sick, how many people would stop smoking or not start smoking. How many people and what would be the cost of those people not being sick and not smoking? Could you tell us about that research and, and what you found these changes would would do? Thanks. Um, well, I think there's, there's been, a, a, like as you mentioned, there's been a large body of researchers, both within Aotearoa and, in, um, and overseas as well. They've been working in this space for quite a few years. And um, there are lots of different ways of conducting the research. So at one end, we've got sort of qualitative research. Where we talk about people's experiences, perceptions, and what it's like to live, you know, with smoking and what they what their 
aspirations are, and really importantly, trying to understand how it affects their health and what well-being means to them. So we've got some really important research around those spaces. You know, a lot of people, you know, we found, uh, my colleagues have found things like, you know, when we talk, when we hear these messages that the tobacco industry tends to say that, you know, smoke's a choice, and then you talk to people who smoke, young people, they say, well, it's not so much a choice when everybody around you smokes. These things are addictive. When you're addicted, you know, it's hard, you know, to quit these things. You don't have a choice then we have like population-based surveys where we just sort of count the number of people doing things. And so the Ministry of Health does that. We've got really good data and it tells us how many people are smoking. And because we know how many people are smoking, um, we also know how many people are likely to die from smoking. It's between one and two, um, two, two, two and three, depending on what you look at. So whatever way you look at it, it's a big number. And the latest estimates are around 5,000 people per annum die from smoking. So that's... You know, that's a mind-boggling number. So if you think about when the government first um, first committed to the smoke-free goal, which is, it was a national government, by the way, um, in 2011, um, that was the, you know, to, to get it to a smoke-free country, you know, we've had about over 50,000 people die. You know, that's, you know, we, our governments have been motivated by far less deaths to do far more in this space. In fact, all this government had to do was do nothing to support the regulations going through. So that's another one is just counting it and asking people what they would do or what they actually want. And so some of our research in that space has invariably found that um, people people who smoke are really supportive of all of these measures. They want these. And some of it, some of the suggestions, you know, some of the research that we've done, we would associate, like ask people how many times have you quit? Do you support, you know, do you trust government? It tells us that people who, I guess, um, have been really struggling to quit because it's a really hard thing to do. We know that nicotine is a really, really addictive substance. Um, they struggle to do so and they find it hard to do so. So they support a government coming in and protecting them from this. This process of quitting nicotine, we think, gives them the choice about you know, their, their life, life things. And you've, you've done the research uh, on the back of previous measures to reduce smoking. So we've had, you know, increases in taxes. We've had uh, changes in legislation about who can buy tobacco. So there is some some precedent. Absolutely. Some data which shows you when you shift one lever, you can have an effect on the number of people who die or the health costs. What did you find when you plugged into your modelling, if you like, the effects of, A, a sharp reduction in the number of outlets uh, from where you could buy cigarettes, B, the denicotization of those cigarettes, and also the eventual ban on people born at the beginning of 2009 from being able to buy cigarettes. How much of an impact was there? So this is getting into the area of modelling, and so it's like a one of the sort of real... Um, for one of a bit of term, one of the arts of research, where we sort of look at what we know and then forecast in the future what will happen. And this is largely done by uh, has been done by colleagues in um, in this university that I'm based at Otago, and colleagues over at Melbourne University as well. Um, and I think one of the important things is before we get onto that is we we, we need to think of the smoke-free goal in the context of we've had 30 years of tobacco control program. Things like cessation programs, things like encouraging people not to start, young people not to start smoking, things like creating smoke-free environment, which are really seen as cornerstones of tobacco control. But what we know about these programs um, from our research says that, yes, it brings about a change, but it's a very, very slow change. It's slow and incremental, and it's, and perhaps even more importantly, it's not fair on everybody because we assume that if I tell someone to quit, 
everybody can say, okay, cool, I'll quit, but that depends on the resources and the context that you live in. And because of that, we see that we get these inequities happening. And so I'd call that business as usual. And so it's an important part of tobacco control, but the context of this setting the goal, which was set, you know, was first proposed by Māori leaders who were seeing what was doing in our communities. This was just taking too long. We knew how many thousands per year were dying and that was inequitable, we had to change the game. We had to step beyond our business as usual. And some of the modelling done just after this, the government committed to the goal, which followed a Māori Affairs Select Committee inquiry, by the way, um, said, well, if we continue doing what we're doing, business as usual, our smoking rates for, in this case, I'm just thinking of uh, of non-Māori women, we're going to drop to about what they wanted to in 2025. But for Māori women, we're looking... 2060, I think, was the date. It was decades into the future. So the modelling, we, we knew what we were tracking on. And if you look at this modelling, and I think it was done in 2014, we're actually tracking quite close to what was predicted. So that was one thing. And then, as you mentioned, um, as we moved into um, when the government proposed these new measures in their plan in 2021, um, you know, some of my colleagues overseas um, led some modelling studies where they said, okay, how we want to predict what sort of impacts these things are. Are they going to have the massive change that needed in a short time frame in a way that's fair for all so that we all get to the goal at the same time? And what they used was um, as a type of modelling process where they looked at, okay, there's lots of different scenarios. You might have people who smoke um, and then they, they might quit, they might not quit. Uh, they might quit but use vapes. They might quit and not use vapes. So there's all these different outcomes you can you can work out. And... Um, and then you can kind of work out the probability or the likelihood of each of those outcomes happening. It's really complicated. And when I look at it, my eyes start going cross-eyed a little bit because it's really complex. But um, but what they do as part of this, look at, well, what, how do we figure out the probability of this happening? And that's based on the evidence that we know. Um, so some of the things that leads to lots of research studies out there that says, okay, in a sort of controlled environment, if you give people very low nicotine cigarettes, people will tend to quit. Um, some of them will compensate for a short while, but it'll be like smoking tea bags, and not many people smoke tea bags in this country. They'll give it up after after a pretty short time. So it's pretty pretty important impact. And then things like what would happen with reduced retail, and they say sort of plug in all these things. And then there's a few bits where we don't know, and they go through what's called an expert elicitation process. So they get a whole bunch of people who know a bit about this area. And they figure out, and they say they give them a survey, and they go through this process, and then say, well, based on this, what do you think will happen? And um, and it's you know, and it gives you basically what I'd say is a fairly conservative answer to what might happen when you know when these things come in place. And that's that's a you know that's a expert, um, edu- you know, ed- an educated estimate of what would happen. Um, and I'd, I'd I'd hasten to add, you often hear about the ninety five percent safer vape um, um, discussion. That was from an expert elicitation process. And in some ways, it makes sense. You know, you think, oh, well, it's got all these nasty things in it, but they're not as nasty as tobacco, probably this much safer. So that's how that works. But I'd really hasten to say with that is that it's only one of the, one part of the process. And so what they did is they put this through, they put the um, the very low nicotine cigarettes. So the theory behind there, if you make them, um, cigarettes essentially non-addictive, people are not going to smoke them. And if people don't smoke them, they're not get harmed by them. So... That's the theory there. So it's kind of a straightforward one. Um, the other one is uh, reducing um, reducing access to retail tobacco outlets by 90%. So if you're a marketer, the first rule of marketing is make your product available on every street store, every service station, and every supermarket, which is exactly where cigarettes are available. So worked out how, how to do that, and there's lots of ways of doing it. So no process is perfect. And then the third way was... Um, introduce the idea of the smoke-free generation. So this is where we protect our future generations from smoking. And, you know, so if we, I think it's um, people born after 2009, I think, 
you know, if we, if when they reach the age of 18, they will never be able to buy cigarettes, which is legal age of purchase. And so effectively, you, you create the smoke-free generation going forward. And I think it's a really important measure and sends an important message. But when you think about it just for that one, it's actually a long, long play one, that one. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. So once you've plugged those things in, tell me what that does to health-adjusted life years and what a health-adjusted life year is. Yeah. So we so what it does is we say we get an estimate of how many people will quit smoking or do something different. And then we know that if people quit smoking, especially before a certain age, we know how this will affect their um, how, how many people will die, which is mortality, and how many people will be sick or not well, which is morbidity. So things like, you know, might smoking, you know, increases risk of stroke, for instance. And so a person who has had a stroke, a severe stroke, will have, you know, they will have, um, it will impact their well-being much more than a person who hasn't had a stroke. So we sort of factor all that sort of into it. And taking into account that, you know, at the really rough end of the scale is people, somebody dying, which is, gets, a, I think, a number of zero, a stroke by severity, you know, might have another sort of figure. So we sort of work out how many health, you know, that, person's health status and how many years they would experience that by. And then we put that into the model as well. And the number was extraordinary, um, uh, p- particularly the undiscounted number. Uh, you know, over half a million ye- years yes. saved by yeah. these measures. If you, you know, use a what they call a discount rate to sort of, uh, in theory, uh, reduce the the, va- the value of a life in, in the long-distance future, which seems crazy to me. But the un- undiscounted number was over 2 million. Yes, and you got to remember, we're not just talking, because the way that, you know, many industries, and tobacco industry is a, you know, a nasty example of this, is it's not just the people who smoke in the current time, but the people that they need to recruit to take smoking up into the future, our young people. So we're not just talking about people quitting, we're talking about people never starting. And so it's it's mind-boggling numbers. And I think I was just looking at the numbers again myself. In terms of, you know, the number of deaths that we'd save over the next 20, 20 years or so, it's over 8,000 in total, over 2,000 for Māori. And we think that's the conservative estimate. So, good Lord, you know, this is how many thousands of people need to die before somebody takes action. And I think one of the challenges for this, for 
you know, I guess it's a general challenge in public health, and I think it's probably something that the listeners will be interested in, is you don't see these people in car accidents. You don't see these people on the news. They, they pass away or live lives away from the public media, dying in you know, intensive care from lung cancer, all these things. We don't see them but they do happen and they do affect our communities. It obviously affects the people involved, but the whānau, you know, the loss of, you know, social structure, the cost, the loss of income, all these things take a toll on our society. You've no doubt interviewed many people who have been sick or been affected by deaths. Can you give us an example of, of what's surprised you or struck you about the damage done by smoking? One of the things that, I'm not sure if it's a surprise, but the way we sometimes fall, and I like that you mentioned health-adjusted life years, sometimes we just think about the health state impacts of smoking, and that's a particular angle on how we understand health, which is really important. Obviously, you know, sickness and illness and death is really important, but it affects our families, our whānau, and much more than just that. It's It affects us in terms of, you know, people not being around on the on the marae, you know, for Māori, because we have a, it really affects our life expectancy, which means in our communities we have less, less elders around and all that sort of stuff. So the impacts and the freedoms, sometimes, you know, we talk about, um, you know, people's choice. And I think one of the things that sort of resonates with me is the fact that not smoking gives people choice. It's not a choice about whether they want to smoke or not, but the fact that they're not smoking gives them the choice about their life, you know, the, how they want to live lives that isn't dictated by having to have a cigarette or, you know, if we're going to get into vapes, vapes every other time that costs money and takes them out of a social situation. And could you just lay out for people the inequity involved here? It, it always stuns me when I look at the pure numbers, the charts, showing just mm. how much higher the smoking rates are for Māori women, Māori men, and in particular, young Māori women. Well, I think the... Generally, the inequities, um, and and they haven't really changed for the past two to three decades, is that Māori men and women smoke at double the rates of non-Māori men and women. So it's around 20%, I think it is, at the latest count. And it has dropped, which is great, but it still, still means thousands of deaths. So there's this huge inequity in use. And one of the things I'd also point out is this isn't different, this isn't unique to Aotearoa. It, for Indigenous populations in Australia, in the US, Canada, and those sorts of places, we're very diverse. Some of them actually have traditional histories with the sacred tobacco plant. Well, I'm not talking sacred, I'm talking the commercialised, exploited version. Their smoking rates are invariably much, much higher than the general population. So when we talk in inequity, and I think this is one of the things that our government is struggling with, we're talking about the experience of discrimination and colonisation. And, you know, there's a lot of forms of discrimination when we talk about smoking and how people experience it for for females, it's about, you know, it's sexism and then it can be racism and then it could be, you know, and, and discrimination because you're on a lower income because we assume that somebody who's presented with an option, a choice of going to a cessation service who doesn't take that choice or can't quit, it's their fault that they don't quit. That's an inequity spelling out there. So the new government's got this idea of social investment. In fact, the finance minister is also the social investment minister and there's this idea that you can intervene as a government by spending a bit of money here, a bit of money there, early enough in the process and you can save a lot of money down the track on education or health or justice or whatever. How would you describe this intervention in terms of, you know, how much, in a purely financial sense, money you could save down the track if you were a national government that was all about social investment? 
Well, with the, that same finance minister just said that they want the money to pay off the you know the the financial financial burden as a source of revenue for them, which pretty much puts them in the same category as the as big tobacco in terms of they're getting a profit off the misery and suffering of people who smoke. And so, I can't see the investment in there in terms of costs to the health system um, and and costs to the system. I think it run, runs into and I've just forgotten it runs into the billions of dollars of expense. But we also talk about if we talk about social investment, we lose the investment because these people aren't around. Who pass away or to live, you know, lives with with their well-being, you know, affected, or loss of income themselves, or loss of income to the family over generations. And this is where we see this happens over generations. This is why it's so hard for some families and some communities to get out of, you know, being in these income brackets because these things just roll over generation from generation. And we blame them because we're saying they're making poor choices. And this is it. Just does my head in. Sorry, but the. I can't see the investment, and I can't see how you can just, you know, be selectively investing in one one bit and jumping it and doing another, and then at the same time, you know, saying, "Oh, we're going to um, tax, we're going to do tobacco tax because it helps us mm. bring in money." So this government is very big on cost-benefit analysis and the idea that money shouldn't be wasted by the taxpayer. This these sets of changes are estimated to reduce health spending by five point one billion. And that's that's including a, a discount rate. A, apart from the discount rate, it's more than ten billion. This government's also very keen on making sure lots of people work and pay taxes when they're not alive or they're sick. They're not doing that, and they're not being productive. In fact, the productivity benefits estimated are over five billion dollars. So, for the sake of seven or eight hundred million dollars of lost. Uh, tobacco excise, which the government has said is needed to make tax cuts, they are essentially imposing costs on future governments and future people of at least $10 billion. And that is before you take into account just the sheer social and human cost of lost relatives, watching people die, feet being cut off, those sorts of things. Um, what was your feeling when you heard that this government was going to unravel what was legislated last year? Well, I think it was, it was a feeling of betrayal because this government has has said that they supported it. I feel it was a failure in democracy because it wasn't on any of their manifestos. Um, and I also feel, you know, it was on, I think, Axe one, but it suddenly popped up out of nowhere. But also picking up on that point you said about, you know, the, getting the tax revenue off them, this implies that they're dependent on them, so it's in their interest to keep them smoking. And that's the same as the tobacco industry. And also putting your point to about how much it costs, this means that they're committing to funding a tobacco control program into the indefinite future and kicking the problem down to another government, you know, the issue down to another government. You know, and the, the interventions that we were talked that talked about aren't highly expensive interventions. Telling the tobacco companies to take the nicotine out of cigarettes is the tobacco company's problem. You know, and we don't, and, and dairies don't have to sell this stuff, so we shouldn't have to be expected to, you know, be held to, you know, held to ransom by people saying, well, illicit trade or whatever is going to happen, or there's going to be um, ram raids. It's just they don't have to do this thing, and then also, you know. It's, Taking your point, if it's an evidence-based um, government, they need to look at the evidence and know that this isn't supported, these, these claims. Andrew Wah, who is a health researcher at the University of Otago, thank you so much for being on When the Facts Change. Great. Cheers. Thank you. 
When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.